Ecclesiastes chapter 6, and we're going to start in verse 10. Why don't you read with me? Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he's not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of faith or face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of the fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This is also vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Let me pray. Father, we ask as we look at your word this morning and consider it, as we try to understand this series of parables that the preacher has given us as to how to be wise in the midst of adversity, that we would be a people who are, who are interested in what your word says, who believe it and submit to it, who love it, rejoice in it. We are a people who understand that all things come from your hand, and that we are always rejoicing and thankful, even when we don't know why we should be, except that it comes from your hand, and it must be for our good. We pray that you'd help us as we study your word, help us to love it and live by it, for the glory of your son's name. Amen. Well, I'm sure many of you have gone through some sort of adversity or suffering. Maybe you won't call it suffering. Maybe you prefer the word adversity because you feel like it wasn't yet bad enough to be suffering. It depends on your age and stage in life and what you've gone through. And I don't know everybody's life story, but in some way, almost all of us have faced, or if not all of us, have faced some kind of adversity or suffering that we might even consider senseless. In other words, we have no idea why we ever faced it. We're not exactly sure ultimately why it happened. 
We might say, oh, I learned lessons from it. That's not what I'm talking about. Great, you learned lessons from it. But at the same time, it sort of seems like, why did that have to happen? Couldn't I have learned that lesson some other way? Think about the kinds of things that happen. You lose a relationship with someone. A relationship goes south. You lose a job or a business. You get divorced. You lose a child. You have a rebellious child as they grow older. You contract a disease. You suffer from some sort of psychiatric disorder regularly, like massive depression or anxiety. You're raped or molested. You're persecuted for some, for some strange reason, or you're sitting under some sort of government oppression. I have no idea there's a range of things that can bring adversity, things beyond what I've mentioned here or suffering to our lives. And I think the thing that's hard for us to grasp or to get a hold of is when we're going through all of that stuff, whatever it happens to be, the thing for us that's hard to grasp is that God has designed all of those things. Hear that? God has designed all of those things for our good. God promises to be working in all things for our good. And therefore, he's designed situations and circumstances and adversity and suffering for our good. And it's hard for us to get a hold of that the best way to handle adversity is to trust him enough to look for the relative good. And by that, I mean the relative good because in the midst of some intense suffering, you may not be able to see any real substantive good, but you can find some relative good, right? Sometimes you say, it could be worse. Relative good. And that's what the preacher in Ecclesiastes is telling us. He's telling us, look for the relative good in the situation. Know that God has given this to you. And the preacher in Ecclesiastes, nor I, want to come across this way, that this is some kind of pie-in-the-sky theology, that we got to put on some kind of plastic smile and act like everything is just hunky-dory when in fact it's not. We're not saying that you can't recognize in the midst of suffering that this is not the way it's supposed to be. You should recognize that. If you lose a child, you should understand this is not the way it's supposed to be. If you go through a divorce, you ought to understand this is not the way it's supposed to be. But this is, in fact, because of the fall of man into sin, the way it is. And you should recognize in the midst of this that it's okay to grieve. We're not saying, when I go through all this, please don't hear me saying that it's wrong to grieve. Or that it's wrong when an injustice has been done to you to desire for justice to happen. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what the preacher's saying. What the preacher's saying is that while those things are true, you should also recognize as fallen people that everything that happens in your life is for your good. None of it is accidental. So what's the better way to handle adversity that the preacher gives us. He gives several proverbs from basically 7.1 through 7.13. He gives us several proverbs. What I'm going to do is try to take chapter 6 verse 10 through 7.14 and break it down just to six different truths that he gives us 
for looking for the relative good and suffering or adversity, okay? Six of them. I'm not going to take every single proverb and break it. We're going to take six of them, okay? So here's what they are. The first one is this. First thing the preacher tells us is we should recognize that we don't know God's ways. Hear that? We should recognize we don't know God's ways and trust him. It's real simple. You're going to, duh, right? Look at what he says in verse 10. Whatever has come of chapter 6, whatever has come to be has already been named. Hear that? Whatever has come to be. It's talking about all the circumstances in your life. Whatever it is has already been named. What does that mean? Well, the focus is on God's providence, the way that God is working in our lives. And what does he mean by it's already been named? Think, what else does God name? In the beginning when he creates, he names everything, doesn't he? Light and day and night, etc. He names everything that happens throughout all eternity. He names it. That means that God has already determined what it will be, whatever has come to pass, and whatever will come to pass. He has already named. It isn't a mistake. It isn't an accident. God is not up in the heavens and something bad happens in your life and he goes, oh man, I didn't think about that. What should I do now? He's God. Look what he goes on to say. Now has it been named, and it is known what man is. In other words, he wants to set it up. God has already named it all, and it's known what you are. What are you? You're a man. You're a creature. Look what he goes on to say. And that he is not, man, is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. In other words, what he's saying is, whatever comes to be has already been named, and you're a man, you're not God, and it's worthless for you to argue with him. It's worthless for you to dispute with him. The more words, verse 11, the more vanity. The more you argue with God about circumstances, the more you tell him, I don't think this was the best way for you to handle this, God. You could have brought this about in a better way. The more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? There is none, right? Verse 12, for who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life. In other words, again, this word vanity is used again and again, and its, it's focus is it's like a breath on a cold morning. You breathe out on a cold morning, and you see a little bit of condensation, right? And then what happens? Gone. It's like a little mist. Gone. It's like that's your life. Your life is a vapor. Here today, boom, gone. That's, that's the sum total of your life. And he says this, what good is it? You know, who knows what's good for man while he lives a few days of his vain life? Your life is like a breath. How do you know what's best for you? Which he passes like a shadow. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? You don't even know what's coming next. How do you know what should be now? You don't know what God's doing. You can't argue with him. That's what the preacher's saying. Providence is like a giant painting, and I've given this before, this illustration. If you think of the way God is working, and you think of a giant painting of God's story, and you think that you're this little person, this painting is massive, and you're this little tiny person who's up looking at just one little part of that painting, and you're saying, I don't get it. 
I don't see it. You're right, you don't. You don't see it. You're not God. You can't see the whole painting. And it isn't until you're dead and with him that you get to back up and see the whole picture and you get it. And even then, you may not fully comprehend everything because you're still, but guess what, after you're dead, not going to be God. You have no idea how all these things work together for good, but they do. Isaiah 45, 9 which Paul picks up in Romans 9, says this, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or your work has no handles? Wouldn't it be absurd to see a pot, a clay pot being made, and the pot's looking up at the potter saying, I'm not exactly sure I agree with how you're doing this. It's absurd. That's exactly what he's saying with regard to us and the way we object to what God is doing. The best example of this in Scripture is, is a man named Job. You, you all familiar with Job? Job is a man who lost, um, well, Joel's family size, right? You know, ten kids. Lost his business. He lost everything. Lost it all. Lost everything. And he was trusting God, and he had these friends who came to him, and they were of no help. Job's friends would come to Job and tell him, well, Job, it's because you did this or because you sinned in this way or because this happened. That's why all this calamity has come in your life. And Job was trying to suffer well and was struggling a bit with God and was kind of questioning God, why is this happening? And asking some questions about, I think there could have been a better way in a sense. And so God finally comes to Job. He never tells Job why any of it happened. Do you hear that? He doesn't come to Job and say, Job, let me give you the reason why I did all this. doesn't do that. He comes to Job, and in Job chapter 38, this is how he speaks to him. And he does so for almost four chapters, or four, four chapters. It says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Job, you ask such good questions and make such good points. I should have thought to give you a better explanation for all that's happened to you. It's not what he says, right? He says, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. In other words, gird up your loins. Put on a cup. Hear that? I will question you, and you will answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth. Where were you? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. You hear the sarcasm? Anytime anybody tells you sarcasm is always wrong, they're wrong. Because God was sarcastic for four chapters. And he goes on and on and on, questioning Job. Where were you? Who were you? Where were you when I took the seas and shut them in. Where were you when I did this? Where were you when I did that? Surely you know the answer, Job. Surely you know. And Job finally answers after all this and says, Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Here and I will speak, I will question you and you make it known to me. 
I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. You hear Job's response? God never answered him why it happened. All God said to Job is, I'm God, and you're not. Trust me. And Job said, I forgot who you were. Hear that? I didn't take seriously who you were. Forgive me. I trust you. Second, second thing that the preacher in Ecclesiastes says is in verse one, we should look forward to our future hope. We should look forward to our future hope. Look what he says there in verse one. A good name is better than precious ointment. That's not talking about like if your parents named you well, okay? We've heard some bad names. That's not what that means. He's talking about a reputation. A good reputation is better than precious ointment. And he's making a comparison here. And here's the point. And the day of death, you might put in there, is better than the day of birth. The day of death is better than the day of birth? What's he talking about? What he's saying is when you die, what happens? You cease seeing oppression and suffering. You cease suffering. So look to your future hope. When you're born, what happens is the first day of a lifetime of adversity and sin and suffering. Yes, there may be prosperity and joy in there as well, but nothing like being with God for eternity. Nothing like that. So the day of death is to be preferred over the day of birth because the day of death, all that stuff stops. And now you're with him. Look to your future hope. You know, sometimes I think we think that depressed people, have you guys ever been around someone who's in depression? Sometimes I think we think that depressed people who just are saying to you, basically they'll say, I I just want the world to swallow me. That's what I want. I want it to open up and swallow me up. I think we think that they have the faulty view of life at that point in time, don't we? We look at them and say, you know what? You're out of touch with reality. But perhaps, perhaps they see the truth of our fallenness and our hopelessness of, and the hopelessness of our condition better than we do. Perhaps they do. The problem for them isn't that they miss the reality of the human predicament. The problem for them is they aren't at the same time seeing the hope that's found in Christ. The problem for them is that they aren't at the same time trusting God has their good in mind often. You you hear that? I think most of us walk around pretending like things are better than they are with regard to sin and suffering and death. We have blinders on our eyes and we mindlessly entertain ourselves to keep ourselves from focusing on the reality of what's happening in a very broken world. And so we act happy and giddy when it's just shallow. When what we need to do is we need to have a real picture. This is a broken world. But that doesn't mean we have to be without joy because we understand this is a broken world with hope in Christ. There's hope there. What does Paul say in Romans 8.18? For I consider that the sufferings of this present time 
are not worth being compared to the glory that's going to be revealed to us. Hear that? Not even worth comparing. Look forward to your future hope. The day of death is better than the day of birth because the day of death, your eyes close to suffering and sin and death and they open to the glory of God. Third, we should find joy by facing the reality of human frailty. Hear that? Sort of the point I was just making. We should find joy by facing the reality of human frailty. Verse two through four. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. The house of mourning, incidentally, is the place where people are mourning the death of somebody. That's a funeral. It's better to go to a funeral than to go to the house of feasting. What's the house of feasting? That's a wedding. So I said, it's better to go to the funeral than to the wedding. Look what it says. Why is it better? For this is the end of all mankind. What? The house of mourning is the end of all mankind. And the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of faith the heart or face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of the fools is in the house of mirth. People often ask me this question. Do you prefer as a pastor to do weddings or funerals? What do you prefer? I just got to do a wedding last month, and it was glorious, Tara. It was wonderful. Please don't get me wrong here. I like funerals better, though. And it wasn't because her wedding wasn't wonderful. It was. They say, really, you prefer funerals. Why? Why do you prefer funerals? Well, I don't prefer them because they're more fun. It's not why I prefer them. Why do I prefer, prefer funerals? Because it's at the funeral. It's with the family and the friends when the loved one dies that all the masks fall off, isn't it? It's there when someone has just passed, when someone has just died, that suddenly everybody faces up to what's important in life, what matters. They think about eternal things. And all the other junk sort of goes away. And you actually get to know them. It's better because when people face death, they're able to see more clearly than ever what's eternally important. And then they're inspired to joyfully seize each day. Have you ever had that experience where you go to a funeral and while you're mourning the death of someone, you have a strange sense of joy about what really matters in life? Look, he isn't arguing we shouldn't be joyful when he says sadness of face, right, is better than Sorrow is better than laughter, and sadness of face makes the heart glad. He's saying that it's through sadness of face that we become joyful. What he's saying is that when we are shallow and afraid to deal with reality, while we're endlessly entertaining ourselves in order to self-medicate in some way out of facing reality, he says, then you won't really know joy. When you look the reality of suffering and death, in the fa- and death in the face, when you lay it to heart, you find true joy because you know that you can seize this day for the glory of God because right in front of you is the picture that you may not have tomorrow. Besides, what else do you have to hold on to? 
honestly, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of adversity, what else do you have to hold on to? Silly, shallow humor? That can help you? Fun? When I was going through some intense suffering in my family, um, Jason and I tried all sorts of methods to help us deal with it. One of which was he rented a silly movie that everybody said was so funny, and, and we were both watching it, sort of like, oh, this isn't funny at all. It wasn't helpful. It was my suggestion, by the way, not his, but it wasn't helpful. Running down the atheistic road of believing that suffering and impending death have no good purpose, that's not particularly helpful either, is it? The truth is that facing your mortality, hear that? Facing your mortality, your certain coming death, is the only way you can be freed to find joy in adversity. See, if you cling to this life, you're never going to find real joy. Never will. If you give up this life and cling to Jesus, you will find joy. Fourth point. It's in verse 5 and 6, and this is it. We should look to our godly friends for advice and adversity. We should look to our godly friends for advice in adversity. That's sort of a tongue twister there, advice in adversity. Anyway, okay. All right, look at verse 5 and 6. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. What's the song of fools? The song of fools are those kind of shallow songs that we sing at parties. You know, they're fun for the flash, for a flash of a moment. They're good, they're fun. They have no abiding help or value, right? You know what I'm talking about. Can be fun for a moment, no abiding help or value. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. Why? Because for as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This is also vanity. In other words, when you take thorns and put them under a pot, what'll happen is they'll burn and pop real quick and then they're gone. They make a real big flash of pop and they sound exciting, but then it's over, gone like that. That's what the song of fools is like. They want to drag you out to have fun and then it's over. It's gone. It doesn't have any abiding value. And what he says is we need people to speak truth into our lives in the midst of our adversity. We need people to tell us the truth in adversity, not people who just want to medicate us with empty pleasure. Do you hear that? Now, I'm not talking about Job's friends. I want to make this clear. By people who tell us the truth in adversity, I'm not talking about Job's friends, the the men who came to Job to tell him all the reasons why this was his fault. Okay? People who like to assign blame. They aren't necessarily the truth tellers you're looking for in adversity. I remember when I was younger, my, my, my father was killed when I was six, just about nine days actually before my seventh birthday. My father was killed in line of duty as a police officer. He was killed um, by a drunk driver. And it uh, um, uh, wasn't too many years later that my mom was um, dating another man um, who was a great guy who at, for all intents and purposes it looked like she, she could potentially end up marrying him um, who went to, I think, a class reunion or something like that and ended up getting killed in a car accident as well. Um, I think I was in fifth grade when that happened. And that was a, that was a drag, of course. At that point, you're wondering, what, what's up with this? What's going on in our lives? What's God doing? And, and in came one of Job's friends, one of our neighbors, a new age practitioner, 
came to my mom and gave her the very helpful information that the reason this happened is because in your past life you killed some people and drunk driving. Thanks. That is super helpful right now. Why don't we all fly out to the New Age section of the bookshelves and buy up the books, huh? But frankly, we, we may not go to that kind of crazy extent, but when is blame ever helpful? A girl gets pregnant out of marriage. Well, the reason that happened is because you were having sex out of marriage. Thank you very much. I didn't realize that. If you hadn't assigned that blame, I wouldn't have known. Super helpful for you to point that out. All right, I'm suffering right now. It may be my own doing, and it's real helpful for you to make that known to me why. Well, when is assigning blame ever helpful? What we're talking about are those who love us and want to help us face what is happening, not those who want to try to provide the reasons they think it's happening. Because they don't know. They're not God. I'll give you an example of how it looks when it's good advice. When we were in the midst of our situation, um, I was in my office lamenting to Jason, our assistant pastor, telling him, Jay, I... I, I you know, feel like God put this calling on my life to lead this church and pastor and do all this, and I feel like that whole calling is on hold right now. You ever felt that way? Like what God has called me to do is just on hold right now, and, and so I, I don't know if I'm ever going to get to that calling or not, and, and I, was, I was basically woe is me, pity party sort of situation. And Jason gently and wisely and rightly said to me, no, you're, you're completely wrong, Chad, completely wrong. God's calling in your life has not been put on hold. This is God's calling in your life. And the only way you're going to suffer well through it is if you embrace it as his calling and thank him for it. That was tough news to hear, but it was true. And it had a biting value. Fifth, we should be patient in adversity. We should be patient in adversity knowing the end is good. Look at verse 7. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. See that impatience in adversity is a sign of pride. Hear that? When you're impatient in the midst of suffering, it's a sign of pride. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry. For anger lodges in the bosom of fools. When you're in the midst of adversity or suffering, you're not supposed to be quick to become angry because anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Proverbs 12.16 says that fools show their anger at once, but the prudent ignore an insult. Fools immediately become angry when something doesn't go their way. You want to know if you're a prideful fool? When things don't go your way, are you impatient and angry? If you are, then you're suffering with pride. And foolishness. It goes on in verse 10. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Again, this is a sign of an impatient fool. He complains, why? Because he thinks the former days were better than now. And he doesn't let the current situation run its course. 
He doesn't see the good God is doing now, so he assumes that the days before were better. Here's the situation. My life was prosperous up till this point, and now my life really is not good. Those days were better than these days. See, that's a foolish assessment. That's an assessment based on what man can see, not on what God sees and the good that he's working. Here's the point. Patience is born out of humble trust in God and his ways. Impatience and anger are born out of prideful trust in your own assessments of how things should be. When you're in in an adversity of any kind, you need to be patient and not become angry with God. Rather than being impatient with God and your circumstances. Why? Because we don't know what God is doing. We don't know what he's doing. But we do know this. Romans 8.28 clearly says, what? For those who love God, who are called according to his purpose, he works together all things for their good. All things for their good. We don't know what God is specifically doing, but we do know the goal is our good. That's what we know. So what do we do? There are two responses, okay, that demonstrate patience. You want to hear them? Two responses that demonstrate patience. The first one can be found in Psalm 77. So keep your hand in Ecclesiastes 6 and look there briefly with me. Psalm 77. Just go back in your Old Testament two books, or actually, yeah, back toward Genesis, two books to the Psalms. Psalm 77. I want you to hear what patient suffering looks like. It isn't phony. Here's what he says. This is a psalm of Asaph. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. In other words, he's, he's just praying to God, stretching out his hand, pleading with him. My soul refuses to be comforted. You ever been there? You're in suffering and at night you're longing and praying out to God to help you and your soul is refusing to be comforted? When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open, just I can't go to sleep. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. Now listen to what he does. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? And the psalmist is screaming out for the answer, no. I will remember, listen to what he does, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God. And I could continue on. He demonstrates why. See what he does? In the midst of suffering, 
in the midst of pain, in the midst of having no idea how to respond to it, he is patient enough to say, Lord, I am hurting right now. I can't sleep. I can't speak. I can't even hardly think straight. But I will do this. I will recount your goodness to me because you will not forget to be good to me. I don't know how in the midst of the circumstance you're going to be good to me, but I know you have been good. You've promised to continue to be good, and I will trust you. I know this works out for my good in the end. And it continues on, as Paul says in Romans 8, 26 and 27, when he talks about the fact that we don't know how to pray. When we're in the midst of it, he says, when you don't know how to pray, the Spirit is himself interceding in your heart. Because you don't know what to say. You don't even know how to pray. But you're trusting that God is interceding in you. Sixth, we should pursue wisdom and prosperity so we can walk well through adversity. Do you hear that? This is, those of you in prosperity right now, many of you probably aren't really suffering in any substantial way right now. You feel like life is pretty prosperous. I feel like right now, my personal, our family life, what's going on with this church, what's going, it's very prosperous right now. So what do you do in the midst of prosperity? We pursue wisdom in it. Why? so that we walk well through adversity when it comes. You prepare for adversity. Look what it says in verse 11 of Ecclesiastes chapter seven. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, and really that ought to read, I think, as an inheritance. An advantage to those who see the sun, for the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage is knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Now, I want you to look at what it says here in verse 11, 12. Wisdom is good as an inheritance. What's an inheritance? In that system, in the Jewish system, an inheritance was always the land, and it was a forever inheritance. Even if they sold their land on the year of Jubilee, it was still returned to them. And the land always provided shelter and food and safety and adversity. And what he's saying is, just like the inheritance of that forever land that you can never lose, so wisdom is good in adversity. Provides for you the same way. It's an advantage to you. It protects you like money protects you in adversity. When things really go poorly, money can be helpful to get through situations, can't it? It doesn't provide everything, but it's sure helpful. When you know God and his ways, you can be sustained through adversity. That's what he's saying. That's why we tell you believers, read the word, pray, be part of the church. You don't just do these things as ways to satisfy you. Do you hear that? You do these things to prepare you for the adversity or the suffering you will face. It's coming. You need to be preparing yourself. It's what wisdom is. It's prepare yourself. Prosperity is never promised to you this side of eternity. Did you know that? Prosperity is given to lots of us. It's never promised to you this side of eternity. It is promised to you in spades on the other side of eternity, but never on this side of eternity. But adversity or suffering is promised to you. Philippians 1.29, right? For it's been a, <laughs> not only has faith been given to you, but what else? Suffering has been given to you. That's why Jesus teaches us to pray. Lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
and he teaches us to pray that. Why? Because when suffering and adversity and trials get difficult, we are likely tempted to turn against God, to curse him, to run from him. And we need to ask the Father to prepare us to run to him and to cling to him in adversity. And so we talk a lot about, with all this said, we talk a lot about suffering and sovereign grace because we want to prepare you for it. Hear that? Talk about it. Because we want to prepare you for it. As long as I live and I am privileged to pastor this church, once you hear this, a promise. As long as I live and I am privileged to pastor this church, by the grace of God, we will never be a church that plays with Christianity like it's a nice side dish to our lives. We will never be a church that practices some empty, flat, plastic Christianity. We will face the reality of sin and suffering and death. I never want to be a pastor who sits by the side of parents who just lost a child. I never want to do that at all. But I never want to do that specifically in a situation where they are wondering what they can cling to because all that I've ever provided them was some empty suit, happy, clappy, shallow set of religious platitudes that left them departing weekly, thinking about sugar and spice and everything nice, but that jacked their life up when they needed to hear the word. By the grace of God, we will tell you of the ugliness of sin and the glories of grace, of the difficulties of God's frowning providence and of the goodness that lies behind it, of the brokenness of our lives and the beauty of the one who was broken for us on the cross. Verse 13 of chapter seven in Ecclesiastes says this, consider the work of God. He wants you to consider it. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? That's not talking about moral crookedness. It's talking about the fact that there's adversity in our life. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. That's now. When you're in prosperity, be joyful. Be thankful. And the day of adversity, for some of you, that's right now. In the day of adversity, consider God has made the one the day of prosperity, as well as the other, the day of adversity, so, the man, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Here's the sum of the matter. You can't do anything about God's providential works. Nothing. Except respond with trust in him or sin against him in the midst of it. Those are the only two options you have with regard to God's providence. When life is prosperous, be joyful and thankful. When life brings adversity, remember that God brought that for your good as well. You may not know why, but you can rejoice and be thankful it's true. So what happens if you fail to approach adversity this way? Has anybody in here failed to approach adversity this way? Besides me, can't be the only one. Here's the good news. Your hope is not found in your ability to suffer well. That your standing before God is not determined by how well you suffered. Your standing before God is determined by how well he, Jesus, suffered in your place. Your hope is found in his suffering well for you. Hebrews chapter four and five, speaking about the end of chapter four about Jesus the author and suffering, the author says this, since we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, 
but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. That's tempted to sin in adversity. He's been tempted. Tempted to sin in every way that includes your suffering as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Look what he goes on to say in chapter five and verse seven. In the days of his flesh, that's when Jesus was walking in humanity, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Do you hear that? Jesus suffered in our place so that he could be our high priest, so that when we look to him, we are counted as suffering well with him. Believers, we, brothers, just we've got to pursue wisdom now so that we can deal with adversity later, hoping in Jesus all along. We're gonna sing a song together as we take communion in a minute. I'm gonna pray, but we're gonna sing a song together. And I, I, I want you to just, if you don't know the song, it's okay. Please reflect on the song and what God is doing. This is a song that was written actually by William Cooper, and uh, Reuben's gonna lead us in that song. It was written by him as we pass out communion um, to you so guys, pass it out to you. I want you to hold on to the bread and the cup while it comes around. We will take that together. But I want you to focus on what this song has to say about God working and the both somber and joyful note that are true in the way God works, works among us. Let me pray. Father, we ask, we ask that as we sing, as we hear the truth sung, as we contemplate um, during this time of communion that we would focus on the fact that Jesus' body has been broken for us and his blood has been spilled for us. That he suffered, that we see in front of us a picture of his suffering. Father, apart from you telling us the end of the story, we don't know how good that suffering really is for us. Father, we see both in front of us with the bread and the cup, both the horror of what Jesus had to go through and the glory and the joy that come about because of it. Pray that we reflect on that. We pray for those who do not know you. Father, they would turn to you in faith, trust you, and know that Jesus is their hope. In Jesus' name, amen.